Okay, Boker Tov, good morning. It is great to be back. The real start of the new year as we begin uh, studying together. We missed uh, Bereshus, but we continue. It's hard to believe we're up to Noach already. So we'll do what we always do, an overview of the parsha, and then we'll delve into specific psukim. Perhaps give a fresh look to an uh, old story uh, together today. And uh, we begin our overview of the parsha in the Stone Chumash on page 30, which is the beginning of Parsha's Noach. Of course, we're all familiar with the opening debate that takes place. Noach, Ish Tzadik Tamim Hayyabedorosov. And the debate surrounding Noach, you know, you really break into two polarized camps when it comes to Noach. You see it. It's amazing. I don't know why it emerged this way, but people are actually passionate about it. Is Noach a hero to be emulated? Is he the one who saves humanity, creates continuity, who courageously builds the ark? Or is Noach the selfish individual who only saves himself? has no impact on the world around him and uh, in fact so much so that the Navi refers to the waters later as May Noach this was the flood of Noach because had Noach been a more proactive personality a more courageous personality he would have stood up and he would have tried to change the world he would have had an influence he wouldn't have given up on himself we've shared before the great insight of Rav Levi Yitzchak maybe you know when it starts to rain it says Noach got into the Teva so uh, Rashi comments, that Noah was of small faith. Why? Because God told him it's going to rain, but he didn't actually ascend into the Teva until it began to rain. And the, um, tr- the simple understanding is, that's what it means that Noah had limited faith. However, I think it's Rav Levi Yitzchak, who said, no, Noah's little faith was in himself. Mikatne Amuna was not in others. He had little faith in his capacity to change the world. The number one reason that we fail to change the world is because we don't believe in our ability and our capacity to do so. One person at a time, beginning with ourselves. So, you know, Noah retreated rather than be out there trying to, to change the world. If you read the book, The Rebbe, by Tolushkin, if you assume that it's not to be banned, prominent Chabad rabbi came out this week banning the book, um, but if you assume that you can read it, and I think it's a wonderful book, I learned and was inspired tremendously from it, You'll see this was much of the Rebbe's philosophy, Ufaratzta, to be out there. Noach was not a Chabadnik. Noach was not a Lubavitcher. He retreated and took care of himself, and in many ways we owe a tremendous debt of gratitude. So is there, there is this great debate about, about Noach. I'll tell you an interesting nafkamina to this debate. The Pasuk, it says, Pasuk Tazayin, Soar Tasa La Teva. A Tzohar was to be made in the Ark. What is exactly a Tzohar? What is a Tzohar? So Rashi... I believe it's Rashi quotes. Yes, two opinions. Some say it was a window. Noah was able to see what was happening. And others say, no, it was a precious gem. Light was refracted through it, but you couldn't see through it. So what's this debate? I once saw an interesting shot. These two opinions in Rashi correspond with the two perspectives of Noah. If Noah was in fact righteous, then Noah was positioned to see the destruction of the world. Not to, of course, gloat or take any joy in it, but it was permissible for him to see the world's destruction. If Noah, in fact, was less than a tzaddik, he was a tzaddik for his generation, but, but objectively speaking, in absolute terms, he was less than a tzaddik. So then, like Lot's wife, who was forbidden to turn around to see what was happening to stone behind her, Noah was not allowed to see what was happening, and so there was no window, it was an opaque gem. So this debate in Rashi about what this Tzohar is corresponds with these two perspectives on Noah. I don't want to take the time, this is not what we're going to study today. This debate will never be solved. I think the, the side people come on on this debate probably says more about them than it does about Noah. It's an interesting psychological profile. 
to study why people feel passionately and come down on the different sides of the debate. Is Noach an objectively righteous individual? Noach's a so-so guy, but he lived in such a morally depraved, corrupt generation that Noach even was, was so great. So, of course, Noach lives in this time in which The world is destroyed before God. Why do we need those words? Where else could the world be destroyed? if not before God. God, the master of the universe, sees all. What does that mean? The Rav had a beautiful interpretation. What is Vatisha Saaretz? Vatim Malei Haaretz Hamas? What was the straw that broke the camel's back? What pushed God over the edge to say that He needs to do a hard reboot on the world? What was their behavior? It was not just promiscuity, moral depravity. It was specifically one thing. Theft. Robbery. Hamas. Robbery. Which Rashi defines for us. That's what was happening. Gezel, says Rashi, the world was filled with thievery. In fact, we have a tradition they were stealing things that are pachos mishavapruta, less than a penny, which means that they didn't even get joy from the monetary achievement of stealing. It was the act of stealing itself. It was the um, lack of recognition of proprietorship, of ownership, of people's rights. It undermined all of the moral fabric of society. So, so, so says the Rav, what does Lefnei Elokim mean? What does it mean, Elokim? Said the Rav, why specifically before God? Because where else is theft if not before God? When you steal, you see this in a number of places in the Torah, and many of them are fortune. When you steal, it's an act of heresy. You say, what do you mean it's an act of heresy? Why is it an abomination if you have dishonest weights and measures? Why is that such an abomination before God? Whenever you see theft, you see before God. You know why Sefer Chinuch writes this and the Rav explains here, because if you steal, it means you don't have faith that God's going to provide what you need. If you dip into someone else's pocket, if you premeditatively adjust your scales so that they're dishonest, right? it's not an impulsive spur of the moment act of theft, you in a premeditated way distorted your scales to steal from others. Why'd you do that? Because you thought the only way you're going to earn what you need to earn to live the life you want to live is if you steal. So that is not only a sin, an egregious violation of man, but it's a violation of God. It's a lack of faith that God will provide exactly what you need. So based on this, Rabbi Salavitchik said, The act of robbery, the theft, was not only was not only a violation of man, but the act of theft was an act of heresy that God would not provide what was needed. And that's why it says, Noach builds the teva. It takes a long time. God specifically builds in time, almost drawing Noach out and begging him, use the time to get on a soapbox, speak to others, turn them around, inspire yourself to inspire others. The Noach project, not the Shabbos project. And yet Noach fails in that mission, though he does succeed in the mission, which too took courage of building, of building the teva. All the dimensions are provided, the animals go in, um, and so on. The flood falls, not coincidentally, for 40 days. We always see this concept of 40, significance of the number 40, for some strange reason that's uh, weighing heavily on me. But the number 40, <laughs> you've seen a number of places. The May Noach, the waters of Noach are 40. They wander in the desert for 40 years. Moshe goes on the mountain for 40 days. Uh, the spies go to Israel for 40 days. We constantly see the, this number 40. 40 represents transformation. The, the number for 40, interestingly, is... What's the Hebrew number for 40? The Rebbe said that the world had to be 
the mikvah for a 40 saw. Oh, 40 saw. I'm sorry, I left that one out. The mikvah is 40 saw. So why the number 40? Every, every, if, you, if you spell out every letter in the Hebrew alphabet. So for example, if you spell the letter Aleph, it's Aleph Lamed Pei. If you spell the letter Bez, it's Bet Yud Tet. Every letter can be spelled out. And when you spell out each of those letters, it includes letters different than the letter itself, with the exception of one. What's that? Mem. Mem is Mem Mem. Tocho Kiboro. Mem is a transformation to bring out your inner potential, your inner self. So now think about it. Every time that we have the, the, the number 40, it's an incubator of sorts. It's an incubator environment to bring out the potential. So the world was dipped in the mikvah of 40 saw, as the Rebbe said, in terms of needing to do the hard reboot on the world. Moshe ascends for 40 days. We had to go through 40 years in the, in the desert in order to mature, and so on. All of these examples of, all these examples of 40. Yitzhir Saflat, it takes 40 days before the formation of the, of the fetus, um, and so on. Uh, the waters then begin to recede. Noah sends out the raven, the dove. We all know the story. The earth dries. It's time for Noah to come out of the Teva. Did the flood really happen? You may recall we discussed this last Shavuos with our Mythbusters series. The question, did the flood happen? Not that the flood happened. That's not fair. The flood certainly happened. Torah said it happened. Did the flood happen globally or locally? Now you might look at me and say, Goldberg, what are you, some heretic? Torah says the flood covered the... What are you talking about? Covered the world. But you might think I'm a heretic, but thank God there are many, many commentators. I'm happy to share the source sheets with anyone uh, if you're here or you're listening online. Feel free to email me, and I'm happy to email you the source sheets. But many, many, including Rav Nadel, a Talmud of the Chazonish, including a past president of uh, the president of Bar Ilan University, Talmidei Chacham, expert scientist, uh, Rav David Zvi Hafman writes in his um, commentary on the Torah that the flood happened locally, not globally where Mesopotamia, that's the region that was inhabited at the time. So that was the only place that civilization had a foothold. So when you talk about the world, you're talking about the world of where civilized man lived. And so the flood was regional, the flood was not global. Do I believe that? I don't know what I believe. To me it doesn't really matter what's important about having a precedent for being able to believe that it's regional, not global, is the fact that somebody who struggles scientifically to believe that a flood covered the world, and we don't have evidence of it, although we do, um, should know that within traditional Judaism there's a path for them too. The person who struggles to see this as reconciled with science should not feel at all um, disaffected, but they should realize that there are many upon whom to rely who also saw the flood as regional, not as global. Again, there's much, much, much to talk about that. There's long source sheets I have. I'm happy to share them with you. Noah emerges from the Teva. Correct. The Gemara itself has a machlokas. The Gemara itself has two days whether Israel was included in the flood or not. Tosos has an important opinion there. So the fact that the Gemara entertains one position that the flood didn't affect Israel already tells you that it was not global. It didn't affect the entire globe. So once it didn't affect the entire globe, it's not that huge a leap to say it only affected a region, the inhabited region of the world. Again, I'm not saying you have to believe that. I'm not even telling you I believe that. What I'm telling you is it is a legitimate approach within the 70 faces of Torah so that those who struggle believing otherwise uh, have upon whom to rely. Noah emerges from the Teva. And it says, Vayachel Noach. Where's that Pasuk? It says somewhere. Uh, 
sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. When, oh, here it is. When Noah becomes intoxicated. But you know, actually, first there's the rainbow. Kodesh Baruch gives a sign that all will be well and that he will not repeat this hard reboot on the world. It's called the rainbow. Is the rainbow something that we welcome? Is it a site that we should take pictures of and post on Instagram and be so excited and share with friends? Halacha says no. We discussed this actually last year. You could listen on the Shua website or Y.U. Torah. We discussed at length the symbolism and the halachas of a rainbow. When one sees a rainbow, one's not supposed to gaze. You don't stare at a rainbow halachically. You can note and observe the rainbow, but not gaze at it. And the rainbow is a reminder that God at that moment maybe is not satisfied with the world. And God would like to reboot the world, but He remembers, He invokes His covenant. So the rainbow is not necessarily a positive sign. I don't want to ruin it for everybody. But, um, but uh, halachically, one is not supposed to tell other people, oh, check out the rainbow, oh, look at the rainbow. There's a bracha you say on the rainbow, actually, because we are, we are happy that God invokes the covenant and chooses to maintain His faith in us and our ability to not fail Him anymore. So that's the topic of the rainbow. Then the Torah tells us that Noach emerges on the table. Vayachel Noach, page 42 in the Stone Chumash. It's Perak Tes, Pasuk, Chaf, Aleph. Vayachel Noach Ishadama. Vayachel is Milashon Chulin. Vayachel means that Noach went from a tzaddik, Tamim Mayabedorosav. Noach went from a righteous person of sanctity. Vayachel Chulin. He became, he was brought down. He became a world of of whole. He became a world of the mundane. You know, this is what happens. Sometimes a person gets the adrenaline rush to overcome the crisis, but when it's over, they're so depleted that they lose their spiritual fortitude. That's what happens to Noah. He had the adrenaline rush to sustain humanity, to, to lead the teva. But when it's all over, he's absolutely sapped of all spiritual strength. And Vayachel, he turns to intoxication, he becomes chulin. He plants a vineyard, he drinks wine, he tries to numb himself to the world in an unhealthy way. He reveals his nakedness, his sons cover him up. We learn from here very important lessons. Rashi tells us that they are rewarded di- de- differently depending on the way that they, that they reacted. There's a lot to talk about here. The Rav had a beautiful interpretation. The difference between ethics and etiquette, but all for another time because I want to get to our subject. Yes? Do I look like a vinter? I'm supposed to know how long. It should take a long time when you plant a vineyard for it to grow. Right, how long did it take? It's a good question. It's a good question. Yeah, unless maybe you could argue that the soil was particularly rich and fertile given the flood that it had just experienced and the, I hate to be graphic, but the corpses of man and animals it had just Right, so the soil might have been particularly fertile to produce a, a vineyard rather quickly. I don't know the timeline of the vineyard. He took a tree into the ark with him. He took the vine. Yeah, he took the vine with him already in anticipation. Right, so it's a sapling that he that he planted, not a new growth. It describes Noah as Ish Adama. The Medrash notes that Moshe Rabbeinu began as an Ish Mitzri, and he ends as an Eved Hashem. Noah begins as an Ish Tzadik, and he ends his life as an Ish Adama. They went in opposite directions. Our goal is to grow in life and to ascend in our righteousness. Noah begins, even if you believe the righteous perspective and narrative, he begins as a righteous individual, but he has a, a tragic fall. It's a Greek tragedy. Ish Adama. He ends up in Ish Adama Vayachel. He intoxicates himself, numbs himself to the world, reveals his nakedness, gives up, so to say, on humanity, just as he should have been restoring his faith and rebuilding the world. 
We then, uh, the Torah lists the many descendants of Noah and so on. We then get through the story of the Tower of Babel, which is what I want to study in depth together today. So we'll return to it in a moment. The ten generations to Avram. And the Parsha ends. Gigi, thank you for your patience. This was your question. Page 52 in the Stone Chumash. How does the Parsha end? With a remarkable Pasuk or Psukim that we never note because we stop paying attention after Migdal Bavel and we skip right to Lech Lecha. We all think, who is the first who sets out on a journey to the Promised Land? Who rejects the ways of his fathers? We always think it's Avram. But it's not. Who is the first? Page 52. So why does Avram get the fanfare, the spotlight? Why do we applaud and admire Avram for setting out on this journey as if he left that which his forefather, his father represented when in fact his father began the journey? Why is Terach a villain and Avram's a hero? And the answer is simple. The end of the Pasuk. Vayavo Adharan, but Vayeshvu Sham. What happened? Terach set out on the journey, but did he get to the destination? Haran was a metropolis. It was the big city. It had theater and opera and movies and tons of restaurants. A thriving, bustling city. And Terach became enchanted. He never got out of Haran. He never made it. Vayesh Vusham. He settled. He settled and he never made it to the destination. We don't applaud Avram because he set out on the journey. That's not what's impressive. So did Terach. We applaud Avram because he arrived at the destination. He made it to the promised land. He didn't become distracted and he didn't become derailed from where he was heading to go. Okay, so all of that... Much of it is... Much of it is metaphysical. It's not necessarily literal. And even if you understand it literally, it means, maybe it means from Haran, where his father settled, that he kept going. Maybe it means from his hometown and his homeland, even where, where he was. But it's not a question on me you're asking. State in the Pasuk. It's, it's explicit in the Pasuk. Yeah, it's explicit. His father left Urkastim. So what is it? You're right. We don't, we don't read the, the Parshios, you know... Um, Consecutively, we have a break of a week in between, so we often fail to realize this about Terach and Avraham. But that's the that is the truth, and nothing but the truth. Okay, let's get to the part that I want to review with us today. Perhaps give it a little bit of a different perspective, and that is the story of Bavel, the story of Migdal Bavel. If you have to summarize the story of Migdal Bavel in one word, what would it be? What was the failure of this generation? Trying to reach God. They tried to reach God. What's the matter with that? Aren't we supposed to try to reach God? They didn't only try to reach God. What else did they try to do? They tried to compete with God. They tried to compete with Him. If you want to be with God, that's great. We should all try to be with God. They didn't just try to be with God. They tried to compete with God. But if I had to reduce it to one word, that wouldn't be it. The one word I would reduce it to, I'll tell you in a second. First, let's read the Pesukah. Page 48 in the Arthur Scroll Stone Chumash, Perakid Aleph, Pasuk Aleph, chapter 11, verse number 1. The whole earth spoke one language, and they were united. Echad, Achadim, unity, cohesiveness, collaboration, one word. What was the one language they all spoke, by the way? 
says Rashi, was not Japanese, it was not Indian, it was not uh, Spanish, Lashon HaKodesh. They all spoke Lashon HaKodesh. Says the Sifsei Chacham, how did Rashi know that? He quotes the Medrash. But the Lashon because by definition, if the world had one language, it couldn't be any other than Hebrew. Not, not our modern Hebrew, but biblical Hebrew. How do you know the Lashon HaKodesh? The Rambam says, it's a, the Rambam writes more in the book, it's a mitzvah to speak in Lashon HaKodesh. The Rambam speaks in glowing terms, that it's actually one is in fulfillment of a noble mandate when one speaks Lashon HaKodesh. It's not just like a nice thing to do, you're Zionistic, you're preparing your kids for Aliyah, all of which are also true. But the Rambam sees religious value in speaking Lashon HaKodesh. Says the Sifzei Chacham, how did Rashi know that? How did the Medrash know that? Simple. Because we know that the Torah was, the, sorry, the world was created by Lashon HaKodesh. God spoke and the world came to be. Baruch She'amar ve'aya olam. Blessed the one who spoke and created a world. Ten sayings the world was created. Well, what language did God speak? God spoke in Lashon HaKodesh. He spoke in Hebrew. So if that was the one language the world was created, had there been a different language they were speaking now, it wouldn't have been one language, but there would have been more than one language. If in fact there's one language, says the Sefer it must be a continued use of the original language with which the world was created, namely Lashon HaKodesh. Balaturim says, you know how else you could know it? Right? So Rav Yaakov ben Asher, the Balaturim, Sofa Achas, Bigamatria, Lashon HaKodesh. For those who enjoy numerical value, Lot Gematria, I didn't do the math, but apparently if you add up Safa Achas, that one language, it equals Lashon HaKodesh, based on a Yerushalmi in Megillah, says the Balatur. So the whole world spoke one language, and not only spoke one language literally, but they were united. They were cohesive in their efforts. And what were their efforts? When they migrated from the east, they found a valley in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. They settled there. I didn't see anybody here say it, but we have this tradition elsewhere. When it says Kedem, what does it mean, Kedem? We have this tradition in other places, in our Parsha, in last week's Parsha. Mikadmono shel olam. Kedem is an allusion to migrating away from God. Kedem doesn't just mean the east, but Kedem means Kadmono Shel Olam, the founder of the universe. So when one migrates from the east, it doesn't only mean geographically, but it means migrating away from God. They were leaving God, and they found a place to do it, and they settled there. And they said one to the other. Yeah, not just the wine, Kedem. It's an unusual, right? Kedem. Um... One man said to his friend, Come, let us make bricks. Let's burn them. Let's, what's it called when you finalize? I don't know the technical term. Ami, mean, you'd know this. Bricklayer. What's it called when you make the brick hard using fire? Put it in the kiln and you fire up the brick. Okay. And it transformed the soft material into a brick and the um, material turned into chomer, turned into building material construction material they said let's make a city a tower let's make it go so tall it hits the heavens and we'll make for ourselves a name 
We'll make for ourselves a name lest we be dispersed, scattered along call all of the land. God descended to see the city and to see the tower that man created. God said, you're one nation. Look at what man has made. One people with one language. And look, this is how they use it. This is what they're directing their unity towards. So what should, should I not withhold from them all they propose to do? Let us descend and confuse their language so that they can't understand one another. God dispersed them. They, they, they abandoned the project. And where was the, what this place was called? Bavel. Because there God mixed up all the languages. We have a name for that place today. It's called the United Nations. And from there, Bavel, the place of Balal, God scattered them across all of the across all of the land. Okay, let's go back now and see the Mefarshim. Let's try to understand. So if I ask you again, give me one word that summarizes the mistake, the sin, the violation of this generation. One word. What did they do? Arrogance. I would say honor. They sought honor. shame. They tried to compete with God. They were arrogant. And shame. The Torah itself tells us their motivation. Their motivation was not to dwell in the heavens with God. Their motivation was not to advance science. Their motivation was shame. Let's make for ourselves a name. I'll tell you very quickly, I may have shared it before. The Slanim Rebbe, Shalom Noach Brzovsky Zatzal, and Siva Shalom has a beautiful interpretation. I think it's theologically so important. I share it with every conversion candidate in terms of the background of how the Jewish people came to exist and why we're not in fact superior or chosen, but we are the choosing people. He says God created the world. And God, he quotes the Medrash, God originally intended on sharing His Torah with the whole world. The Torah, the blueprint for humanity, Torah which tells us how to relate to time and food and space and people and relationships and so on. God intended on sharing that blueprint with the whole world. But what happened? Why didn't He? Because He took one look at His world and what are the opening stories of His world post-Garden of Eden? First you have Cain and Hevel. Results in the very first murder. And what was the cause of that murder? One word? Jealousy. Jealousy. Okay, what's the next story? The generation of the flood, the Mabul. What was the cause? Temptation, desire, lustfulness. And then what's the next story? Tower of Bavel. And what's the cause? Honor. Says the son of Rebbe, you think it's a coincidence that our rabbis in Pirkei Avos tell us, Hakina v'atava v'akavod motzian esa adam min ha'olam. That jealousy, lust, and honor remove a person from the world. How'd they know that, our rabbis? It's very simple. They opened the Chumash. And they saw the first three stories. And they understood that it... What does it mean to be removed from the world? It means to violate the very purpose for which the world was created. Okay. Our rabbis kept reading. Our rabbi said, what are the foundations that hold up the world? If those three character traits, jealousy, kind and hevel, lust, doramabal, honor, dorhaflaga, remove you from the world, well then what brings you into the world? Upon what does the world rest? 
And what did our rabbis identify as they kept reading? Torah, Avodah, and Gemilas Chasadim. And where did they see that from? Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov represent Torah, Avodah, and Gemilas Chasadim in reverse order. Why that is for another time. But Torah, Avodah, and Gemilas Chasadim. So our rabbis looked into the Torah and understood the qualities that sustain the world versus the qualities that violate or defeat our purpose in having been created. But in any case, God looked at His world after the first three things that removed people from it. And He said, they don't get it. They're missing the point of creation. They're not going to repair my world. They're not going to sustain my world. They're destroying my world. I'm not giving them the Torah. And then He happens upon Avraham. Abe, a young man who discovers monotheism, a young man whose tent is open on all sides and cares about people. And God says, wow, he gets it. He understands it. He's chosen me, monotheism. So I choose him. I'm giving my Torah to him. And through him, others will learn. And anyone who wants to join him in that mission is welcome. Righteous converts. The whole world is welcome. But that is a very brief history of the Jewish people and of our mandate and mission in the world. Kiddush Hashem, through the Torah, right? Our hashtag Kiddush Hashem campaign that uh, through the Torah to try to bring people closer to God. So our rabbis looked into the Torah, saw the story and understood Nasalana shame. What was the failure of the Dora Flaga? They wanted to make themselves a name. Arrogance, honor. The pursuit of honor is an Achilles heel. It's dangerous. It knocks you off course. The pursuit of honor what did our rabbis tell us also in Perkyavos? That those who run after honor, honor runs away from them. And none who runs away from honor, honor catches up with them. They, they sought honor. Let's go through the, some of the Mephoshim now. Rashi tells us, They had unity, cohesiveness. They said with one voice, with one mandate, Let's ascend to the heavens and make war with God. Why should we defer to God? Why do we have to defer to God's world? This is our world. We can take Him. We're many. He's one. Let's take Him on. Rashi gives a few different psukim. But the, the, the common denominator of all is that they confronted and sought to take down God. Yes. How did they know there was something above them? Maybe they didn't want to know, but they knew. So they had idols also, but they knew. They knew. Says the Kliyakar. Honor takes one out of the world. I'll tell you why. Because what does it mean to be in the world? It means to be fulfilling the purpose with which we were created. It means to be living in a healthy world. For our world to be healthy. When a person is consumed by the desire for honor... It totally distorts their judgment, their thinking. They act in self-destructive ways. They're hurtful to other people. They destroy the world around them. They destroy the world around them. They destroy their world, their sanity. It removes a person from the world, the world of, of, uh, of fulfilling our purpose in creation. Says the Kliakar of Lunchitz. A great insight. He said that you can interpret the entire story of the failure of the generation of the tower through a statement of our rabbi, Sanhedrin Ayin Aleph. Wicked people united is bad for them and it's bad for the world. Scattered wicked people 
is good for them and good for the world. And with the righteous, it's the opposite. What does that mean? It means that, you know, if the Arab world gets together and is united in their hatred of Israel, that's bad for Israel, it's bad for the world. Whereas if they're scattered and fighting one another, that's good for Israel. And that's good for the world. When wicked people are scattered and fragmented and divided, as opposed to when they're united. And with righteous people, or with the Jewish people, it's the opposite. When we are divided and fragmented, it's bad for the world, that it's bad for us. But when we are united, as we were this past summer, for example, that's good for us, and that's something which is very good for the world. Because wicked, when they are united, they use their unity to scheme and to plan against the world. They're united, each have different motivations of why they want this plan. For some it's honor, for some it's wealth, for some it's boredom. So when you're motivated by wickedness and you're united by some wicked superficial goal, then your differences remain and it's ultimately going to be very bad. As opposed to righteousness, which unites us all, which unites us all together. You could read the rest of the Kliyakar. He has a long so that he says, Look at the next paragraph. They began united, speaking one language, a cohesive group. And they had peace. So what led them? What was their motivation? They said, well, you know what? If we scatter, and if we become... This is kind of a debate in our time. Universalism versus particularism. If we become particular, if we have different countries and different languages and different systems and different governments, that's not going to be good. We can't live together. So they said, right now we're united, we're one, centralized, and that's what we need to remain. But they didn't realize that when you're centralized and united in the pursuit of something bad, then that too will implode. Then that too, then that too is a violation of the world and will ultimately... Uh, conclude in, in, in negative things. Rashi continues, Ish el they said one to a friend, not just individual, says Rashi, but Uma Uma, Mitzrayim Lakush, Vakush Laputu, Put Laknan. These were nations talking to one another. You didn't know they were nations because they had one language and spoke in one place, but they were different families, they were different tribes, and they didn't honor their differences. They tried to erase their differences in an effort to be centralized. But that was unhealthy. It was unhealthy. Now here's something fascinating, I find fascinating. The Torah describes that while this was all occurring, God decides to respond. And how does the Torah describe God's response? Pasuk hey. Vayered Hashem sa'ir megdal asher bonu ha'adam. God descends to the world to take a closer look. Come on. Omnipotent, infinite God needs to take, come down to the world to take a closer look? What's Pshat? What does that mean? God's all-knowing. Says Rashi, Of course God didn't need to come. 
It comes to teach all of us to be cautious in our judgment, to understand and to know the facts before we rush to judgment. I actually wrote a blog in the middle of the night last night because this a recent scandal in the Jewish world that's rocked the Jewish world weighing heavily on my heart. And, uh, and part of my, res- my call is that we need a nuanced response. And a, a nuanced response includes a fulfillment of Chazal's caution, have a mesunim bedin, be cautious in judgment, not of the individual. The alleged perpetrator is, is a, there aren't words to describe him and the, and the consequences he should suffer for what he did. But regarding the uh, Jewish organizations, rabbis in general, and so much of the rest of the reaction, it needs to be nuanced, have a mesunim bedin. So Rashi says a very important lesson, Vayirat Hashem Liros, know the facts, know the timeline, know what happened, know what happened. I can tell you as a rabbi, I've suffered this myself in the community, where difficult decisions have to be made, and people who, who didn't, as, they didn't follow, they didn't follow the model of the Almighty, Vayirat Hashem Liros. They didn't come with a list of questions they have to try to understand more before they arrived at their judgment. They arrived at their judgment with no knowledge of anything. So Rashi says this is a injunction, this is a mandate to follow Hashem, Vayerid Hashem Liros. Take a close look, know the facts before you come to, before you come to judgment. Have a misunim bedin. But why Vayerid? Why that verb? Why that word Vayerid? So I want to share with you a great insight from Rav Schwab, Rav Shimon Schwab Zatzal, the uh, former leader of the uh, Yekka community in Washington Heights. And his Mayim Beis and his Sefer on Chumash. Not on our parsha at all. But when Moshe Rabbeinu, when the uh, Jewish people sin, they fail Hashem with the eagle, with the uh, spies. Moshe turns to Hashem to appeal for mercy, and he advances the same argument he did after the egregious mistake of the eagle Azahav. And what's Moshe's argument? If you destroy your children, it will be a terrible chil Hashem. You can't do it. And God accepts the argument and ultimately is forgiven. So, what is the secret of Moshe's approach? Why is that argument? Compelling. Why does he carry the day? How does he convince the master of the universe to change his mind? Shav Schwab says that you got to take a look at the story with Avraham. We'll read it next. We'll read it shortly. Immediately before Avraham's negotiation with Hashem over the future of the people of Stone, the Torah tells us a very similar pasuk to what we just read. What does God say? Er derna Let me go down and see their cries. Why did Hashem have to descend? And how did that create the opening for Avraham to appeal, to lobby on their behalf? Asks Rosh So we see it here in Noah with the Migdal Bavel, Vayerid Hashem Liros. We see it with Sodom, Er let me go down and see. When God is going to issue judgment, it says the language of Yerida, of going down. It says Rosh Schwab, you know what the Pshat is? God is perfect, but He created an imperfect man. And one of the best arguments we can make to God is that He should have mercy on us because we are fallible, because He created us with human foibles, because He created us imperfect. And so Rav Schwab says, the prerequisite for compassion is the recognition of the imperfection and the fallibility of the other. So we call for God to come down to us. We don't live up there with you, God, in the world of perfection. We live in the imperfect world. So come down. Forgiveness requires the recognition, acceptance, and tolerance of imperfection. 
And Moshe understood that. And that was his argument to God. He invites Hashem to descend to the world, to see the Chil Hashem that will result in executing absolute justice. And Hashem descends, he's convinced of Moshe's argument. So therefore you see, now in the case of Stom, he's not convinced of Avram's argument. In the case of Migdal Bavel, he's not convinced. And he executes the punishment against them by dispersing them. But he always comes down first. He tries to see it from the perspective of the other. He tries to see their fallibility. He tries to see their... Now, sometimes there's accountability nonetheless, like with Sodom and Migdal Bavel. But if Schwab notes, it's not a coincidence. That what do we say before the Yud Gimel Midos HaRachamim? We just did this at length. When we're invoking God's compassion, what do we say right beforehand? Vayered Hashem Ba'anan. God, come down. Come down to our level. See the world from our perspective. Understand our temptations, distractions. Understand our baggage. Understand our shortcomings, our challenges. If we're still worthy of punishment and consequences, so be it. But come see it from our perspective. There's a lot for us to learn about the way we judge others from this from this uh, language. Again, I'm not suggesting we let people off the hook because after all, we're all fallible. God didn't let Sodom off the hook. He didn't let Migdal Babel off the hook. But He does create this precedent of Vayered, of going down, of going down to sea. Okay, let's keep going. The Rashbam is bothered, Pasuk Dalad. What is their chait? What did they do wrong? They built a tower. Okay, so they were motivated by honor, but they built a tower. What's so terrible? Says the Rashbam, It can't be because they wanted to build towers that go that high. Because in Sefer Dvarim, we don't see it condemned. You know what their egregious mistake was? God said, Go inhabit, go fill the land, scatter across the globe and conquer my world. Advance scientifically, technologically, conquer my world, manipulate nature. And they said, no, we're comfortable right here. We don't want to spread out. We don't want to go anywhere. And why is that so terrible? What's so bad about that? So then it's Siv and Islamic Davar writes, I'm sorry I'm leaving the Mikros Gedolos a little bit today. I know we usually stick with the Mikros Gedolos. Then it's Siv has an unbelievable pshat. And the Siv says that you know what the sin of the Dora Flaga was? The belief in universalism and the rejection of particularism. The belief in a centralized authority, one body which governs all. What would have been so terrible if some went elsewhere? Asked the Nitziv. And he answers, It was the inability to allow someone else to think differently. If they go move somewhere else and they develop their own culture, and their own system of government, and their own universities. They may think differently. And we can't allow that. Migdal Bavel wanted the monopoly on thought. They wanted the monopoly on culture. They wanted the monopoly on human beings, on humanity. And they were trying to keep everyone in one place and one way of thinking. Fearful of diversity. Says the Nitziv, diversity is nothing to fear. 
It is the beauty of the Jewish people. Shivan Panama Torah, we've given a whole Shabbat Shuvadrasha. It's the slogan of our shul, valuing diversity, celebrating unity. We don't believe in divisiveness, we believe in diversity. We don't believe in uniformity, we believe in unity. But says the Natsiv, this is their mistake. If someone thought differently, you know what they did to him? They burned him at the stake. You can't think differently. You have to fit into the box, into the mold. You have to be exactly like us. That's a dangerous world. So God scatters them to say, diversity is beautiful. Diversity is incredible. Diversity is like what? The colors of what? Of the rainbow. Says Rav Hirsch. Says Rav Hirsch. Let me read to you Rav Hirsch. By it, the sight of the colors of the rainbow, our attention would repeatedly be directed to the fact that in spite of all the differences in the degree of human development, God would never again decree the downfall of the whole human race. But that its future education to its godly purpose was to be founded just on these differences and varieties of humanity. Is the rainbow anything else but the one pure ray of light broken up in seven degrees of seven colors? And from one to the other, are they not all rays of light? And combined all together, do they not form one complete pure white ray? Could not this perhaps be meant to say, the whole manifold variety of all living creatures above all, the whole variety of shades in which henceforth the purely human would show itself in the races of mankind, God unites them all together in one common bond of peace, all fragments of one life, all refracted rays of the one spirit of God, even the lowest, darkest, most distant one, still a son of light. A beautiful interpretation of Rav Hirsch. The rainbow is the antidote. The rainbow is the symbol of the response. I know it came to the Dora Mabel, but it's true Futu about the Dora Flaga. What is the rainbow, says Rav Hirsch? One ray of light comes in, it's refracted into many colors. The one ray of light is God. The many colors is the diversity, the tapestry of the world. Of the world. So we have unity of our diversity. But we don't have uniformity. The failure of Migdal Bavel was a call for and a, a mandate of uniformity, not allowing diversity. And that's something that God utterly and categorically rejects and sees as negative. He instead inspires a notion of diversity. Yes? No, and it was universalism, but it was not. It was not uniformity. And what's the what's the the beautiful interpretation of Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky Zatzal in his Emes Liyakov on not here, but in uh, Sefer Shmos on the Degolim. The, the 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 whole notion of twelve separate tribes is the recognition of particularism. There are twelve tribes. Each tribe had its own character, had its own culture, had its own traditions. Ah, so says Rav Yaakov. Why didn't they? disband and form 12 religions what happened why did God trust to give them 12 flags 12 banners wouldn't that be divisive says Rav Yaakov note the way the Torah describes their encampments 12 tribes who are encamped but what's in the middle the Mishkan when God is in the middle when God is the core value you can have diversity the diversity will lead to the unity of the service of Hashem the diversity is not dangerous if at the center you're united by a noble cause, namely the service of Hashem. It's when the Hashem is not in the middle. It's when there's just utter divisiveness and the effort towards honor, that's when it's a problem. So the failure of Migdal Bavel, says the Rashbam, Rav Hirsch, and Tziv, the Rav, uh, also is the belief 
in uniformity, not unity. Unity is wonderful. Uniformity steals, robs people of their basic humanity and of their basic and of their basic differences. Um, there's more to say here. I encourage you to uh, look. The Svarno has a very interesting interpretation. But we are going to stop here. Rabbi Moskowitz, unfortunately, is uh, 